Just 17 months after arising from the title of world's longest waiting heir to a throne, now comes news that Britain's monarch has cancer. Treatable, uh, says the, says the, say the statements. Uh, prognosis very good. Uh, but it's not just royal watchers who care and are showing concern. King Charles may occupy a post that's almost entirely devoid of any political power. But even in the 21st century, a monarch is still a head of state. Through ritual and manner, he personifies a nation, and in this case, a commonwealth. We'll ask about his decision to quickly go public with his ailment, how he's left his mark in his short reign so far, and what's changed on his watch since the passing of Queen Elizabeth. What's the general mood as the UK heads into its second post-Brexit general election campaign? Today in the France 24 debate, it's all eyes on King Charles. Joining us from London, historian Luke Blackskill, who lectures in modern British constitution and monarchy at Oxford University. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Francois. And we're with us in the studio, Jeremy Stubbs, deputy editor of Causeur, the uh, uh, news magazine, the online news magazine. Uh, and paper. And newspaper, that's right, you have paper print edition. Thank you for joining us. Thanks as well uh, to Annabelle Lever, professor of political philosophy at the French Political Science Institute, Sciences Po. How are you? Very well, thank you. And France 24's Philip Turl. How are you doing? Hello, Francois. Fine, thanks. The, your reactions on the hashtag F24Debate. He's still a new monarch at 75, now facing treatment, though. The palace says Charles has suspended public engagements, but will continue uh, with uh, state business. The king, who was seen in public this Tuesday, uh, going off uh, to Sandringham, uh, 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 leaving Buckingham Palace, Yenke Oyetade, has more on what is a shock announcement. He's just 18 months into his reign, and now King Charles is halting all public duties after Buckingham Palace announced that he's been diagnosed with cancer. Just found out, um, so it's quite devastating actually. Um, yeah, I didn't, didn't know about that. It's, uh, it's sad to hear. It's sad to hear. I it's not nice to hear anyone's been diagnosed with cancer. I kind of feel bad for him. He waited all these years to be king. The monarch was diagnosed while receiving treatment for a benign prostate enlargement. He was discharged from hospital just a week ago. Subsequent diagnostic tests have identified a form of cancer. His Majesty has today commenced a schedule of regular treatments. Buckingham Palace says the King does not have prostate cancer. Following the announcements, messages wishing Charles a swift recovery began pouring in. The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak took to X, formerly known as Twitter, to say that he has no doubt that the king will be back to full strength in no time, adding that the whole country will be wishing him well. French President Emmanuel Macron also sent his well wishes on the social media platform, posting that his thoughts are with the British people. US President Joe Biden reacted to the news while speaking to reporters in Las Vegas. I'm concerned about him, just heard his diagnosis, but I'll be talking to him, God willing. Even the U.S. president, of course, are reacting. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's the whole world that's uh, interested. Jeremy Stubbs, the French all-news channels brought oncologists onto their set to talk about the diagnosis. This, uh, uh, all sorts of speculation and interest. Uh, it, it, what was your first reaction? 
Well, it's uh, <clears throat> obviously a, a very good tactic to announce this because otherwise there would have been speculation with engagements cancelled and uh, timetables interrupted, so it had to be done. On the other hand, it is a, it is, it is a good thing because Prince King Charles, sorry, King Charles is showing that being diagnosed with cancer doesn't mean that a person is written off or has to withdraw completely from their professional life. So I think there is a huge capital of sympathy for him and admiration at the same time. British media reporting, Luke Blackshill, that uh, uh, people are, are, are going to have themselves uh, checked out uh, uh, for, uh, for cancer as a, after hearing the announcement in bigger numbers. I don't know if that's been confirmed or not. Uh, but what, what generally have you seen as the reaction? What's your feeling about it? Well, I think that the nation really had, I suppose, its um, interaction with grief um, after the passage of um, Queen Elizabeth II. And in a sense, I suppose, um, really feels, I hope, a sense of optimism that the king will recover. But on one hand, I'm sure also a sense of pessimism, because, of course, um, you know, now we have the king's health being subject to inevitably a great deal of speculation. I think it is indeed absolutely the right decision to make it public. But at the same time, the nature of the cancer and its severity, with the exception of this point on early diagnosis, aren't really known. And so there will be a great source of speculation. I think the point on people getting themselves checked out for, uh, for cancer as a result of the king, I think that that symbolizes quite elegantly the degree to which the British monarch really symbolizes a kind of a role model, a kind of person who can inspire others to do things. And I do think that if Charles is able to make something really positive out of this in terms of the way he conducts himself during what will be a very, very difficult time where he'll have his own obviously public priorities, stepping back though he is and will still want privacy, that could, I think, be something that perhaps really makes a mark on maybe how we remember him forever. And so I wish him all the best, but I do think that how he handles this is quite important. Yeah, uh, Annabelle Lever, uh, the, the king, you give him marks for uh, uh, putting it out there so early, uh, or uh, as Luke was saying, uh, should he have gone further and told us what type of cancer? No, I think it's great that he said this. But can I just say one thing that I mean, it really strikes me? We're just so lucky in England that, you know, we live in a time where there's a sick monarch, there are feuding children, and yet really nothing of any importance turns on this. I mean, you don't have to think about, you know, Game of Thrones and things to think that it's just so fortunate, really, that the biggest worry is just whether a, a grumpy older man will get well soon, we all hope he does. But the really nothing of any significance turns on what's happening. I think that's wonderful. I do think it's interesting, the disproportion between the news coverage and how very little actually turns on his health. Do you agree with that, uh, Philip Terrell? I think we're at the point where we're seeing a shift in the perception and what is given out, what information is given out by the royal family. We've had in the past <clears throat> practically no information about their health. We didn't know whether they were in hospital or not. We were always told they were suffering in cases of cancer from a long illness, but not uh, explained, no explanation was given as to what. And by, by the way, that's be. a story that resonates in this country because we had in the past two French presidents 
who hid their cancer, won until the day he died. Well, uh, the, the best known being François Mitterrand. Georges Pompidou is the one Pompidou I was reading. as well, yeah. yes. Yeah. Pompidou and Mitterrand. Uh, we didn't know about that. I think that is a, a, an era that is now hopefully over. Uh, and I think that you have, to, you have to give the credit to King Charles for being the one person in the royal family who's decided to move forward with that and to make this information more readily available to the public. I don't think they're going to go much further than they've gone already in giving out the type of cancer he's got. But if you consider the fact that uh, in the past we wouldn't have known anything at all about what was going on, we wouldn't, probably wouldn't have known that he was in hospital, we now have quite a lot of information, not only about him, but about... Uh, Catherine, uh, also who was in hospital recently for stomach problems. We also know that Sarah Ferguson uh, has had skin cancer. All of these are revelations that are quite extraordinary for the royal family. So give credit to the king for this. I think he is right. I, I come join forces with everybody else saying I think he was right to uh, release this information, to let it be known, not only because it would have eventually leaked out and would have been more detrimental to them had it gone that way. But also it's going to help a lot of people come to terms with the fact that they may also be suffering from cancer. They're not the only ones. The king is also suffering from it. So they may get some kind of respite thinking, well, if he can get it then and he can get treatment, that's what I should do. Or maybe I should go and get uh, a, a check done to make sure that I haven't got it or a problem with my prostate. So all of this is good, positive uh, news from the king, uh, which is something that I think we, uh, we should take stock of. Uh, Annabelle Lever. Yes, sorry, can we just say one thing, that for a lot of people, the possibility to get tested is going to be very difficult because, as I understand it, um, access to healthcare in England at the moment is extremely lacking and a lot of people are being urged to go and get private treatment because they can't get the treatment they need on, on the NHS. So it's fine to say, well, this is very encouraging. To, it'll encourage people to go and get treated. But of course, lots of people can't get treated even if they want to. Luke Blacktail, what's the conversation where you are this Tuesday? Is it uh, about uh, health care or is it about the family drama <clears throat> uh, 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 of, of a family that everybody knows? I think inevitably it's about the family drama. It's also really, I suppose, about the question of regency, which is obviously a historical question. So if Charles is incapacitated and he will not be taking part in these public duties, although he will still be doing his private ones like signing off um, state papers, what then is the role for the remaining royals in his stead in terms of performing the ceremonial functions that the monarch must perform as part of their role? So. Um, there are some, I suppose, agreements in place about this. They really stem from the 1953 Regency Act, when uh, the previous queen became the heir apparent with her father, George VI, on the throne. Um, and in this case, we can expect to see Queen Camilla. We can expect to see um, uh, Prince William um, take on some of these kind of functions. Um, but the question is, how, how long will they be able to do that? I suppose, with Charles being absent. Now, of course, in the short term, I think everyone understands, and obviously there will be a huge outpouring of, um, or, or reservoir of goodwill for him to draw upon. But in the longer term, you know, his mother did say, I have to be seen to be believed. 
And if he doesn't make many public appearances, he is, I think, able to mitigate that a little bit by maybe appearing in videos and things and, you know, using kind of you know, the <clears> Internet <throat> and modern media to perhaps get around that. But if he is increasingly not seen in public and it is his delegated duties or indeed as formal regents, um, then, you know, there may be, I suppose, a question mark about how far the monarchy is able to project its power of image, because ultimately it is all about image. It is all about, you know, how Charles appears um, and what the role of the monarchy is seen to be rather than what it actually is. And that's why I think, if anything, for a constitutional monarch in the modern era, something like this is perhaps more severe than it might have been for an old fashioned hard power monarch in the era before the glorious revolution and before the weakening of the power of the monarchy. So I do think that there are some real challenges um, ahead here for the king. But I think the question here in Britain is really about who else steps up to the plate and how the family managed to get through this period in his partial absence, shall we say. Yeah, the number one role of a monarch, and we talked about this a lot when Queen Elizabeth died, uh, uh, Jeremy Stubbs, is simply to be, to, to incarnate the monarchy. And uh, therefore, you can't stay out of the public eye very long. Well, yes, there are some, some serious constitutional questions lurking here because um, we really need Prince Charles to, King Charles, to live on for a long time and properly f train his son and heir, Prince William, in the way that he was, although for a much longer time than we expect for William, because the but reports... Surely that's already begun, no? For, uh, for years, no? It's begun, but apparently it's not complete, François. And, and we learned this thanks to the Daily Mail last month, where the specialist of royal questions, Robert Hardman, published a biography in instalments where he claims that Prince William does not share King Charles's spiritual dimension. He's talking of abridging the coronation ceremony to a kind of one-hour shindig and even rejecting the role of Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Now, Prince Charles... That, in, in, in fairness to what Philip said, uh, rolling with the times and uh, changing the monarchy has to adapt to the modern era. Speaking as a conservative, I cannot possibly approve this. But I think also there is a question that, as you were saying, that, that there's something <clears throat> about the majesty and the being of the monarch. If you take away too much of the magic and mystery... I think the power, the power will drain away with it. Annabelle Lever? Yeah. I'm a bit sceptical about this. I mean, I find it, I do find it hard to think of William as particularly majestic. I could just about do it for Charles, but the idea of him as being particularly majestic seems peculiar. So it may be that, as in a lot of roles, people come and we... We sort of see them grow into it, or maybe just the role itself is the one that we respond to rather than the person filling the role. But um, the idea that he has to be majestic does seem to me a problem. And probably, to my mind, he's quite wise to think, how is the monarch going to be with him and find his own version of the role rather than trying to do what his grandma did, what his father's doing? It's a very, very different generation. Right, but I think if I may, my, my go dinner, ahead, I, think, so. I think there is an inherent issue there of balance. I mean, there is the magic and the mundane. I mean, ultimately, if William appears to be a largely kind of secular figure who just appears to be 
kind of in what he says, much like a politician without a party line. I do think that there is the danger that increasingly people sort of ask, well, what is the point of this sort of additional kind of voice? It is absolutely true, though, that you know monarchs have had to roll with the times, and there were, there were great abridgments of the coronation ceremony, even that we saw under Charles. And I think Charles had struck the following balance. He was clearly a modernizer and always has been something of a modernizer in regards to the way he thinks about the role of the royal family, advocating a slimmed down monarchy, for example. But in other areas, he's much more conservative. For example, you know, the point about the supreme governorship of the Church of England, that he is, you know, the the representation of God um, for a, a certain conservative section of the population. Um, and those rites and those ceremonies, while they seemed arcane to many people overseas and many people in Britain as well, do matter to a certain percentage of the population who particularly hold the monarchy really very close to them. And so I think Charles was starting to define this sort of mixture of liberalism and conservatism in his reign. William will want to make his own kind of stamp on it, um, but perhaps he hasn't quite worked out those kind of questions just yet. Of course, the British people will always have been reconciled Uh, I think, to the possibility that Charles's reign would have been a short one. He came to the throne at the age of 74. It would be difficult to expect that to be otherwise. Um, But certainly to be confronted with these kind of questions and also to speculate on the style of William as a monarch or indeed as a potential regent where he may get to, I suppose, embody some of those things, even though he's not actually crowned, is a conversation I don't think the British public were expecting to have, but one that will inevitably begin now. Philip Charles, this is something that uh, French audiences and people from other countries don't always uh, seize upon, which is it, Britain has an official religion. The, 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 the King of England is also the head of the church. Yeah, and the Church, church of England and uh, a guarantor, if you like. Um, and that is a very important role. It goes back to the time of Henry VIII. And yet you have less of these arguments about secularism than you do in, well, here in France. I think... My view is that I remember before Charles became king, for years there were many discussions going on about what kind of king he was going to be. Was he going to carry on uh, speaking his mind, writing letters to MPs, uh, tear up the rule book, become uh, a a monarch who was going to revolutionise the royal family? And when push comes to shove, that may have been something that he had in his mind for years before he actually became king. But when push comes to shove, there's something very important to remember and that is that if you play around with the rules too much and you tear up that rule book and you impose what you want you are potentially putting the royal family in peril in the future and the underlining aim of the royal family and that was what Elizabeth II always uh, was there to guarantee was the future of the royal family it would take precedence even over her own children because she had to actually make sure the royal family was going to survive in the long run and I think now that Charles is king whatever he would like to do there are constraints to what you can actually do when you get the job and I think that William if you look at the training that he's already had over the last 40 years he's been many times in the company of Queen Elizabeth II. She has talked to him endlessly about the role that she had, the training she had, the ins and outs, the do's, the don'ts that you have to abide by when you are a member of the royal family and above all king. So he's not going into the job or won't go into the job one day with his eyes closed. And I think that that there are obviously going to be questions asked about what kind of king William would be one day. But remember that when he does become king, let's hope that's as far away as possible for Charles's sake. Uh, He won't 
won't be able to play around with the rules that much because he's going to be putting in jeopardy the royal family and the pressure will be on him to toe the line, not just within the royal family, but from the British public and also by the British government. All right. How much or how little a, a, a king of England, of Britain matters is a conversation that we it's often been had. Uh, but you know this story's a big deal when even that bastion of Republican values newspaper, The Guardian, splashes the news above the fold on its front page, albeit with a picture of Taylor Swift at the Grammys. Uh, Britain's biggest selling tabloid, The Daily Mail, seems to be quoting <clears throat> the prime minister who told the BBC, uh, uh, thankfully, this has been caught early. If it's not the other way around, Richie Sunak perhaps quoting The Daily Mail. Um, the same Daily Mail, which uh, in its uh, 11 pages of coverage this Tuesday expands on survival rates, good, his diet, linseed on fruit for breakfast and no lunch, and on how he'll maintain his weekly uh, sit-down with the prime minister. Jeremy Stubbs, how much power does a king have? Well, uh, does those weekly meetings matter or it's just form? Uh, they, they are probably very useful for the Prime Minister <clears throat> because he's actually able to discuss the affairs of state with somebody who has no vote and whose advice, we would therefore hope, might be disinterested. Um, it's also, I think, good because there is this... You know, it depends how far you, you evaluate the importance of symbols in life. And although you can overestimate them, I think to freeze them out would be a great problem. Somebody like Charles, he's managing and he's overcome an awful lot of obstacles. He embodies a certain moral stance in life, which I think people have come to some extent to trust and admire. And as for the religious role that you evoked earlier, I think what people in France in particular don't understand is that the... The Church of England is not really a, a militant church these days, but a, a fluffy, cuddly, cardigan-wearing, open-to-everyone kind of uh, church. So it's not a threat. And in this respect, Charles, as the embodiment of that, is not perceived as some kind of holy Joe who's going to mess up the uh, profane world of politics in some way. The king of moderation, Annabelle Lever? Well, so far, he's been fairly moderate. Can I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm clearly the sole one here who's a bit sceptical about this. But can I just suggest that most people don't really pay a lot of attention, and maybe even aware of these weekly meetings between the prime minister and the monarch, whereas they're probably much more aware of the monarch, um, the prime minister's meeting with the opposition at question time. So I'm slightly sceptical about how much it would really matter if, Everybody you know, knows about it. Just watch the crown. Happen. You know, I wonder whether it really matters whether this didn't happen. Whereas the importance of question time, even if a lot of it is obviously ritual, seems very much more significant, in, pa in part because it embodies the idea of public accountability in a way that going to see the monarch from time to time really doesn't, because all that does is sim symbolise the fact that technically... It's the majesty's government and not the government of the people of Britain. So I think, yeah, I think it's actually quite problematic. Legitimacy, Luke Blacksill, uh, it's based on power. Uh, it's what confers power. Uh, the legitimacy, uh, the, those rituals that we see, uh, the weekly meeting with the prime minister and a king, is that more important than the right of prime minister's question time or the other way around? 
They're both clearly important, but it depends really whether your political values are liberal or conservative, broadly conceived, um, which is to say that if you look at, say, prime minister's questions and you look at those very democratic rituals where you see uh, the British House of Commons kind of clashing and politicians of different sides very vociferously disagreeing, you may hear the sound of democracy and that may you know, warm your cockles. It may fill you with a sense of kind of patriotism. Um, on the other side, though, the, not that these audiences, of course, are televised, the fact that they happen, the fact that the monarch and the prime minister are seen together reminds, perhaps especially more conservative people, that the British constitution is not like the French one. The British constitution is a constitutional monarchy. It is an agreement. It is an arrangement between parliament and between um, the House of Commons and parliament to govern in this way. And that goes right back to the glorious revolution of 1688, where Parliament, after our civil war, or after the restoration and nearly another civil war, declared the throne vacant and then asked um, William of Orange to fill it. And thus, there has always been an agreement between the monarchy and between um, the prime minister and the House of Commons that has symbolized the British constitution. And I completely agree that those things are arcane and might be lost on many people. But the fact that they still exist together, the fact that we know that at the top of the constitution, there is the monarchy which embodies the ancient, the magic, the ritualistic, and then the politicians who represent, you know, the knives and daggers of the now, so to speak, you know, the political and party games, the men of the moment, etc., the democratic parts of the constitution. That it is those two things working in unison that are continually re-symbolized by those, by those things happening. And um, I think that's why for certain people, I think quite a large number of people, they are very important rituals um, and uh, need to continue for Britain to justify its existence as a constitutional monarchy as opposed to something else. And ever since there's been kings, there's been court intrigue. And that's also what uh, in this era of mass media people follow uh, with the cancer diagnosis, the king's younger son, Harry, landing at Heathrow Airport this Tuesday on a commercial flight from Los Angeles, Los Angeles, where he's lived since quitting royal duties in 2020. Philip Turrell, that, that, that seemed to get as much attention. Would, you fair, would it be fair to say here in France this Tuesday, the fact that Harry's back than, uh, than, than the king's diagnosis? I think that Harry and Meghan have sold countless tons of newsprint since uh, their decision to get married and then leave and go to the United States and write the book and do the Netflix series. I think they're losing a bit of steam right now. But of course, the fact that Harry has come back has sparked up two debates. The first one is, well, will Harry and William get back together? Will they uh, heal the rift. I think that looks pretty unlikely as far as we know. There's no plan for meeting. But the people are more interested in that in the soap opera than in the, the, the questions that it's we're discussing. The, it is two different issues, I think. It's called the soap opera. Yeah, it's two different issues. As I said, the, 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 the public will want to know if Harry and William are going to get back together. Does this mean this trip coming here that Harry is going to uh, put all the differences behind him and William as well and they're going to get back together to, to be two loving brothers as they used to be? I think that's pretty unlikely right now. There's not even a, uh, a plan for the two to meet. Will Harry and Charles uh, make ends meet and get back together? That is much more of a possibility this time around that Harry is coming back. The other debate that's been sparked by this and, is, And does course, that matter? Because, again, I get back to Annabel Lever's point at the beginning. Does that matter? 
Or is this just, well, some, just something where we can all talk about it, we can all speculate even though we don't know them personally? It doesn't really matter, but it does matter because it's part of the royal family. It matters because it can affect the way the royal family operates. It matters because Harry has written a pretty uh, outspoken book, uh, pretty much trying to finish off the royal family and point the finger at them for being a racist, out-of-touch uh, group of people. So all of that matters, and it's, it has unleashed terrible damage on the royal family over the last three years or so. So it, it does matter. And the fact that Harry has come back has sparked this other question that many people are asking tonight is, well, how serious is the cancer? Are we not being told the whole truth? Is Charles in a worse state than we are being led to believe? Does this visit by Harry signify that the, the king doesn't have long to go? We don't know. I think what well, we are seeing, basically, that, that, is that what, what is happening is that uh, Harry is there. He wants to see his, his father. He wants to uh, obviously try to get back together with him because he himself has had a bit of a rough time. His mother died when he was young. He's no longer talking to his brother. He's far away in the United States. I think he misses his family. <laughs> so this is a, a, a reason to come back to try to maybe start uh, thawing the relations between them all. Uh, Annabelle Lever. Yeah, sorry. I mean, it just seemed to me speculating. I mean, the idea that if your father is ill, you wouldn't want to go and see him, even if it's not life-threatening, seems to me a little bizarre. I mean, it seems to me a perfectly natural thing to do, whether or not it's terribly serious. Cancer, after all, is scary for anyone, even if it's not, you know, even if it's caught early. And his father's quite old, so although he's very fit, he's still quite old. So I don't know, I wouldn't make any conclusions about how serious the illness is, because Harry wanted to go and see his dad. I mean, maybe I'm naive, but that seems to be a perfectly normal thing to want to do. Well, one of the shocks, and you mentioned this earlier, Jer Jeremy Stubbs, or one of the things that makes you stop to pause, maybe shock is too strong a word, is we know his reign isn't going to be as long as that of his mother, but the fact that this diagnosis comes so early in his reign is also a reminder that Queen Elizabeth was healthy for almost her entire life. Well, yes, she was uh, uh, exceptionally We never had these kinds of discussions. In, in that respect, absolutely. But um, as I think uh, we were saying earlier on, this has given Charles something of the dimension of an everyman, somebody that we can more easily identify with, somebody who, whatever happens to him over the next months and years, there, there's great potential for him, actually, in a... I don't really like to say this in a sense, but to, to become something of a hero through all this. Everybody loves a winner over illness. And if he achieves that, he will inspire a lot of people, no matter what the state may happen to be of the NHS, which I don't think will be brilliant, even if the Conservatives continue in government. All right. And it's only been since last December, by the way, that the Treasury has started minting banknotes that bear uh, Charles's uh, portrait. And that uh, is also uh, a, an idea, it gives you an idea of the fact that all this, his, his reign is new, and so to hear this diagnosis is a shock uh, for, for, for many. An heir who waited his whole life to ascend the throne only to reign a short while. Well, that's the story of Queen Victoria's son, Edward VII, who was king for nine years before his death in 1910. Now, the French remember him fondly. It's on his watch in 1904 that these traditional rivals sealed the Entente Cordiale, an alliance that would stick through two world wars. Uh, and 
it turns out, historians have told us, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Luke Blackshill, uh, that Edward VII, uh, his role uh, in diplomacy uh, went beyond just figurehead. Yes, I think that's right. It's really the last aspect, I think, of what he did that was really, I suppose, had greater relevance than monarch would now. Um, his mother, Queen Victoria, was really, I suppose, the first constitutional monarch, but there were still questions that weren't really decided during her reign. When the time Edward comes to the throne, he is clearly a constitutional monarch without really any political power at all. But diplomatically, that's not necessarily the case because diplomacy, of course, has never really been bound by any hard and fast rules. It's always been about you know men or women on the spot and um, pragmatism. And I think it's certainly true that in the lead up to the signing of the Entente Cordiale, which, of course, put aside really a century of, of acrimony between Britain and France and came to some kind of working relationships, especially in regards to Egypt and Morocco, that the king's very well, fairly outspoken pro-French stance was something, I think, that mattered um, for um, French opinion. And for example, for, um, uh, for Paul Campbell, certainly. Um, and he was then able, and so he was responsible for the signing of the Entente Cordiale, but he was a relevant factor. It's hard to really say about this because it's behind closed doors. And I don't think it's entirely implausible that was there to, were there to be a, uh, an issue of, say, Anglo-French disagreement, for example, if, for example, the British politicians found themselves really at loggerheads with the French, that perhaps the French politicians and indeed the French people might look to Charles in the same way as was the case with Edward VII, that there's a very pro-France monarch currently on the British throne. And that perhaps might win some, you know, potential friends, you know, potential some, you know, lighten the mood music at the very least. So I don't think it's entirely implausible that uh, Charles could have a relevance, not perhaps as something as definitive as the Entente Cordiale, but of some relevance in some kind of Anglo-French diplomacy um, ahead because of his outspoken uh, pro-French views. And, and, and him, himself speaking uh, uh, French, uh, Luke Blackshill, are you saying in essence that uh, it pays to be an understudy for a long time? <laughs> I, think it can, I think it can be, but the difficulty uh, of being an understudy is that you end up forever living in the shadow of uh, the person that came before you. Edward always was going to live in Victoria's shadow. Edward uh, presided domestically over a time of great um, domestic um, upheaval um, uh, for all sorts of reasons, both in terms of the finances of Britain, uh, the suffragette movement, uh, chaos across the sea in Ireland, etc. But nonetheless, the Edwardian period wasn't really, shall we say, defined by historians by Edward. It was merely a time when a great deal happened. And Charles certainly has had the benefit of being an understudy, but he'll want to define his reign with something. And of course, it may be, or an irony may be, that there may be a silver lining in this cancer diagnosis, because he may be able to show um, what a modern public figure can do with a diagnosis like this, uh, rather than it either being hidden or just simply having a monarch who was just impervious to illness, as, as Elizabeth seems to be. That he has an opportunity to, I, I think, take the role of unique leadership, which comes with constitutional monarchy, to a very new kind of realm here, which is the dealing with and suffering with illness. And of course, above all of those illnesses, still in public mind, is the illness of cancer, something that so many people or people's families are touched with in their lives. And so the king has an opportunity to be quite inspirational 
really no matter how bad the cancer is, whether it is very mild or whether it is very severe, he still has the opportunity to be genuinely inspirational. Yeah, you were mentioning uh, the uh, events that happened on the watch of Edward VII, on Charles's watch, uh, well, we've had spiking inflation, uh, bitter domestic feuds over the Conservative Party's uh, anti-immigrant policies, its Rwanda deportation scheme. This week, though, saw a rare win for moderation on Richie Sunak's watch with his Northern Ireland aid package that's uh, broken the political stalemate in Belfast between pro-EU nationalists and pro-Brexit unionists. If you were to qualify the times of, uh, again, we're only 17 months in, uh, the, the, the times of Charles III, uh, how, how would you do so, Annabelle Lever? Goodness, um, I hadn't thought of that. I was thinking more, in fact, because of his commitment to the environment, which has been very important, and as many people suspected, would put him at loggerheads with the government. On Ireland, I suppose what's going to be fascinating is if this is really the beginning of unification and what that would mean, if that really is what his watch will stand for, is a peaceful transition of, you know, separate kingdoms into united Ireland. I mean, seems probably or, a little Or a reconciliation with the European Union? Well, maybe the Irish thing is more likely than the reconciliation with the European Union at the moment, especially because the European Union, poor things, I mean, the tensions there are so strong at the moment. It's not really clear at some level who you'd be reconciling with anymore. I mean, this, the, internal, the internal tensions within Europe are just so great. Jeremy Stubbs, you heard Luke Blacksill mentioning how having a Francophile king could be useful if, uh, if it does come to a reconciliation. Well, I think uh, he, Charles has already demonstrated that in his visit to France, which we remember was intended to be the first visit abroad that he was going to make. And it's because of events in France that couldn't take place. And he had to go to Germany first. Um, but... Uh, yeah, we, we had demonstrations here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the, what we will call in future perhaps the Carolingian period, um, certainly the uh, restoring of power sharing in Northern Ireland is a significant change from things that we've known in the recent past. And in order to achieve that, the latest deal actually hidden within the folds of it is uh, a certain, shall we say, hidden tendency for the United Kingdom to remain more strictly aligned with Europe. So I would say that the, 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 the Carolingian age On the is, quiet. is going to be an age of quiet reconciliation. I Philip think Terrell? that is probably true. I mean, if you look at the picture that's been issued of Charles that was on the front pages of all the newspapers, you can see him standing in an open doorway. It was a picture that was taken during his visit to France last September. And that's been chosen by the royal family as the, the picture that has been sent out with the announcement of, uh, of his cancer. So there, there is a link always, and it's, it, there's always been a link, I think, between uh, going back to Edward VII and even beyond between France uh, and uh, the United Kingdom, the Queen Mother, the, the mother of Queen Elizabeth II, spent a lot of time in France. Uh, the Queen herself, Queen Elizabeth II, spoke French. Uh, so uh, she'd been to France many times on private visits to buy race horses. So there's always been uh, a 
uh, a, a link between France and, and the United Kingdom, which is something I think we're going to see continuing, certainly while Charles is on the throne. I'm not sure about William what his link is with, uh, with France, but uh, we're certainly going to see that, I think, continue with Charles. Annabelle Lever. Sorry, what I was going to say was one of the issues, I suppose, is how the Conservative Party reacts and how various parties in Northern Ireland re react to the fact that this is a deal that, as I understand it from the papers, requires a certain amount of compromise with the EU and perhaps more compromise than sections of the Conservative Party are willing to accept or perhaps sections of, of Northern Ireland. So in that sense, at least to my mind, it's not entirely clear what happens when, um, when the, the facts of this deal emerge more forcefully. It may be that it helps to build more bridges with Europe, but actually, given what's happening in the Conservative Party, it's also quite likely that this may, this may blow up in ways that actually exacerbate tensions over over Brexit. Yeah, we, we've heard, well, in any case, for the time being in the last 24 hours, uh, get well wishes from uh, the uh, uh, pro-Republican Sinn Féin movement in Northern Ireland, from the Scottish yeah. National Party, which espouses uh, independence uh, for Scotland. Uh, Luke Blacksell, you're heading into a general election. Uh, the daggers drawn politics, as you described it earlier, uh, is that receding is, is, uh, on Charles's watch or is, could he still? Because remember, when he took the throne, people were wondering, one of the big questions was, uh, is he going to see the breakup of the United Kingdom? Yes, I mean, Charles has certainly presided over a great deal of political turmoil immediately, of course, because it was under Liz Truss's watch, of course, that um, uh, Queen Elizabeth died. I mean, since um, the premiership of Rishi Sunak, there has been, in terms of domestic politics in the Conservative Party, compared to what there has been under the end of Johnson and Trust, comparative uh, stability, if anything. Um, and so... Um, in that regard, I think that the political daggers have slightly been put down. I think also something else, which is a certain view about the power of political inevitability. The opinion polls in Britain have not shifted um, since Rishi Sunak came to power. Uh, the Conservatives lose every by-election that is fought by thumping margins. The commentariat and the political classes in Britain have more or less accepted that there will be a change of government come the next general election. And so in that regard, the role that the Conservatives now find themselves in is they have about a year of power. Um, and in a sense, are they going to argue amongst themselves? Are they going to try and change leader again? Or are they just sort of going to accept their kind of goose is cooked, to coin a phrase, and concentrate upon, you know, providing actual leadership? I mean, the question of the United Kingdom has you know, forever been present, really, since the beginning of the sort of... Um, Scottish independence debate in 2014. In regards to the situation in Northern Ireland, um, I mean, obviously, this is a Sinn Féin first minister, um, you know, the first we've ever seen in Michelle O'Neill, and that's of some significance. You might have a Sinn Féin uh, government in the south of Ireland at the same time. But ultimately, for there to be a united Ireland would have to be something that both sides on both sides of the border would want to happen. And that's really not clear that there is majority support for that, certainly not in Northern Ireland, even though Northern Ireland is now majority Catholic. And so I sometimes think that when people are looking at that from the outside and they 
you know, they see the ascent of kind of Sinn Féin and increases of Republican mm. sentiment, uh, that they are probably projecting something that's quite unrealistic onto the situation. And one final thing I think is that while it's true that Northern Ireland may be becoming more politically, uh, economically aligned to the Republic of Ireland in terms of its trade because of the nature of the way Brexit has been worked out. The UK can always do something else with Northern Ireland, which is essentially subsidise it. And that has generally been the strategy of generations of British politicians to continue to buy um, their loyalty. And um, I think that those subsidies uh, might get bigger. Uh, Particularly in, the, in, in an election come. year. We're, we're out of time, but Philip Turrell... Uh, Charles uh, is going to see his first general election. What's the mood going to be like going forward? Yeah, for the general election, uh, well, uh, I think, uh, as we've just been hearing, that the Conservative Party are looking probably... The but will the mood be strident? Will it be more calm than it was I last? think probably more calm. I think we've been in the UK, it's been through a very turbulent period over the last 10 years, especially since the, the referendum, referendum on Brexit. That's all blown over now. People don't even want to talk about Brexit anymore in the UK. doesn't mean that the UK is going to come back into the European Union anytime soon. Far from it. But I think that is over and done with. Now they're trying to move forward to work out exactly what they're going to do. Now the referendum is over. They've left the EU. They're going to have a new government uh, probably later this year. Uh, we'll see what that holds. But we'll of see course, what... if something never changes, it's the royal family and the king will still be there after uh, the election. Right. The sun will still rise on Buckingham Palace. Uh, many thanks, Philip Turrell. I want to thank uh, as well Jeremy Stubbs, Annabel Lever. Uh, I want to thank as well Luke Blacksell for being with us from London. Thank you for joining us here in the France 24 debate. Between 2012 and 2014, the Syrian conflict spilled over into one of the biggest cities in Lebanon, Tripoli. Symbolically divided by Syria Street, the Sunni and Alawite neighborhoods were plunged into a war that was not their own. <laughs> Ten years later, an uneasy peace has returned, but deep scars remain. Watch Tripoli, Syria Street, revisited on France 24 and France24.com.